Welcome back to the Curiosity Chamber. This is Season 3, Episode 14. And if you enjoy the podcast, you can give me a follow on Instagram or TikTok at the Curiosity Chamber. Without further ado, let's go ahead and get into our next guest. He is a former writer for The Tonight Show and comedian who speaks on suicide prevention, and he knows what the barrel of his gun tastes like. This is Frank King. Thanks for being here, Frank. Oh, you know, it's all part of a plea bargain, but I probably shouldn't say that when we're recording. <laughs> Whoops. Well, yeah, it was jail or, jail or Jay. That's what the judge said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so listen, Frank, I'm excited to speak with you because you lived through depression. You've experienced the, the absolute last moment of suicide before actually pulling the trigger. Like You, you lived that. I value your experience and and your words are they're tenfold to me versus someone who can just speak about it you know has written has read some literature that has not actually lived it but has just word of mouth you know just just listening to other people's experiences and I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant so please don't mind me I'll brace myself <laughs> okay it reminds me of like these business teachers I went to to college for business and you know, a lot of these business teachers who never actually worked in the field, but are they're more or less career professors, right? So I have a hard time following them because they don't have the emotional experience that is attached to it. There's a lot more to humans than just speaking. There's feelings associated with with actions and experiences. And, you know, I don't get that when I when I have these professors who are just career professors. They haven't been in the field. They haven't lived that. So when I'm speaking to you, you have like you were in the front line, right? Your your boots were on the ground. You lived this. These are experiences. You felt the emotions, the, the human stuff. If that makes sense, what I'm getting at. Yes, and actually that is that is one of the reasons I think my speaking on it is effective because 25% of the people in the world have a mental challenge. And so when I tell the audience that I can, I can tell them what the barrel of my gun tastes like, you yeah. can see the people with a mental challenge lean forward. Of course, the neurotypicals lean back like, oh, dear God. But, but you know, I, I had a young woman come up to me once at a college, and she said she'd been in therapy for two years, had similar issues to mine, been in therapy two years. The woman was was well educated lots of diplomas on the wall and knew her stuff but she said she had no context for what she was going through and she said 15 minutes into your keynote i'm thinking he's inside my freaking head wow yeah yes yeah. it did more for her my 45 minutes did more for her exactly. than two years, two years yeah. of therapy it's powerful it's powerful stuff yep and, and, you know, these conversations aren't strictly meant for people who are dealing with depression and suicidal thoughts right now, but you have no idea what your life is going to be like next year in five years, 30 years. So it's, it's something to, you know, the unexpected could happen, of course. So it's good to be a part of these conversations, regardless of your mental state right now. Right. Yeah. So I would love to, to start this off by getting a little bit of a background of you who is frank king where did you come from let's start from let's start from your your high school days 
What was well, high school well, like for you? As I say in my act sometimes, uh, people always ask me, was I born funny? Yes, as a matter of fact, an amusing thing happened on the way down the birth canal. Uh, no, high school was, actually, my comedy career began in fourth grade. Okay, let's start there, fourth yeah, grade. Yeah, my, wow. my, I told a joke, the kids were, the kids laughed, the teacher was hysterical, so hysterical she had to excuse herself to go to the teacher's lounge. <laughs> my God. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian when I grow up, and then, 12th grade, I did the talent show in 1975, spring of 75. And nobody had ever done stand-up at the talent show. You know, it was usual group of uh, accordion and dancers and so forth. And I won. And I went home and told my mama, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. And she said, um, son, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care, but you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill, got a couple of, of college degrees, and then moved to San Diego with the insurance company I went to work for. And that was the beginning of the end of my insurance career because San Diego to this day has a comedy store. It's, called, it's yeah. a branch of the one in LA. It's still in the same place on Pearl and La Jolla. Is and that so, the one with uh, Mitzi Shore? Yes, Mitzi owned yeah. it. Uh, now deceased, Mitzi owned uh, the store, and she started one in San Diego to give her a way to get out of L.A. and write it off. She bought two condos at the beach, one for the comics and one for herself, and that way it was all a tax write-off. A very smart one. <laughs> awesome. And I started off as a doorman, in, you know, seating and greeting. And a baby comic doing amateur night. My first amateur night was April 1st, 84. How old were you right now? Uh, let's see. So 84, I would have been, let's see, 56, 66, would have been 10, 76, would have been 20, 26 years old. 26 years old. Okay. Yeah. Got it. My first open mic night, halfway through my set, I heard a voice in my head say, you're home. Oh, yeah. And the second thing I heard was, we're going to do this for a living. I have no idea how, but, uh, and I, I threatened to write a keynote called, what could you do if you didn't know no better? Because I had no idea how hard it was to make a full-time living at stand-up comedy. I mean, part-time is great. If you have a job with health insurance, you know, a paycheck, but to make a living. So, uh, see, that was 84. In the fall of 85, I won a contest when the Improv Comedy Club moved to town. And that December, I said to my girlfriend, now my wife of 35 years, I'm going to go on the road to be a stand-up comedian professionally. Do you want to come along? Thinking she'd go, oh, hell no. <laughs> and she said, yes. So uh, what we, a Yeah, oh, man. Somebody goes, you and, you and Wendy still together? I go, man, who divorces a woman like that? Hell yeah. Yeah, so we were on the road together for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop, no home. Oh, my God. Yep, and we worked with everybody now who's famous. Seinfeld, Dennis Miller, Jeff Foxworthy, Ron White, Ellen DeGeneres, Rosie O'Donnell, Steve Harvey, Adam Sandler, Kevin James. Opened up for, for Lou, Lou Rawls, the Beach Boys, Paul Sedaka, and Neil Sedaka, I guess. Um, Just a few small names there. And Randy Travis. Uh, two nights in Michigan one summer in an amphitheater that held 5,000 people. And somebody asked me about that. I said, well, I just did my third, no, fourth bodybuilding contest yesterday. 
I competed in masters bodybuilding and, and that means over 60. And somebody said, huh? what, what's that like with 5,000 people? I said, well, think about this. Randy Travis has a band and lyrics and backup singers. And what have I got? Microphone. Yeah, so, yeah. But I didn't even break a sweat in front of 5,000 people. However, yesterday, Jay, standing in my underwear on stage, dancing around in front of 100 people, I was terrified. I was going to ask that. I was going to ask what's more nerve-wracking, oh, big God. crowds small crowds. I, yeah, I understand. Yeah, well, I don't know about you, but I, every now and then I have a dream where I'm out in public somewhere, and I look down, and I'm just wearing my underwear. And no, no reason why. And so here I am on stage on purpose in my little, you know, banana hammock um, <laughs> and uh, and doing a routine. Oh, man. It's uh, anyway, yeah, it was uh, but it was a rush doing that thing with with Randy. It's sort of like I don't know if you ever played football, but you get the butterflies right there before the, you know, the first kickoff. And then as soon as you get the first lick. Right, yeah, and yeah. they're gone and you're in the game and you know all is well so as soon exactly. as my first joke hit with those five thousand people i was off and running yeah yeah it's always the uh the start of it and then you just kind of find the groove and you get into it and you feel the energy of the people yeah yeah and you know with five people said i couldn't speak in front of five thousand people i would much rather speak in front of five thousand than five and here's why it's it's um it's because if you have five thousand people and 3,000 of them laugh. I don't care what the other 2,000 are doing. Sure. Right, uh, right. If you have five people and only three of them <laughs> laugh, that's really uncomfortable. <laughs> so uh, so anyway, I did that. We did that until 1993. And then I got a job in radio in my old hometown of Raleigh, North Carolina. There we go. I got hired as a co-host of a morning show, a number one morning show at the time. And in 18 months, I drove it to number six, um, got fired. A friend of mine said, you didn't just drive it in the ground. You drove it in the middle earth. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and the uh, comedy club boom had busted. So the good news was my act was very clean. And I realized that I could do corporate comedy, you know, the rubber yeah. chicken convention circuit. So right, right. I and and people ask me every now and then, what's the difference between a club comic and a corporate comic? About five grand plus travel. <laughs> so, so for the next 10 years. Uh, 10, 12 years, I was making five grand for 45 minutes of stand up. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, uh, it's surreal. And then the recession hit in 07, 08, 09 and business fell off about 80%. My wife and I lost everything in a chapter seven bankruptcy that we'd earned in 25 years. It was, it was just, she was devastated. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. That was the moment, huh? Yeah, literally. Uh, I was practicing, going to the bar and <laughs> put it in my mouth, pull the hammer back, see if I could do it. Oh, my God. Oh, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> so somebody said to me recently, what did it taste like? Relief. Relief? The, yeah, relief. Because a lot of people don't understand that, that suicide most often is not about wanting to kill yourself. It's simply wanting to end the pain. Right. Right. So... It's and I was worth more dead than alive. That's what I was after. I had a million dollar life insurance policy, and I could restore my wife financially if I killed myself. That is just a, a crazy mindset to, to get into. Very common. It's called burdensomeness. Most burdensomeness. people who die by suicide feel like they're a burden that the world would truly be better off without them. It's an irrational thought, but it is actually a selfless thought. You know, I'm, I'm going to do everybody a favor. I'm going to kill myself. 
that's interesting. Problem, problem was that I, having sold insurance straight out of college, I knew that my life insurance policy had a two-year suicide clause, meaning if I kill myself in the first 22 months, it would pay nothing. I can't believe 24 that months, there. pays a million bucks. So I called my insurance agent, asked him how long I had the policy, and he didn't realize in the beginning what I was asking, really. He goes, I don't know, I'll how check. Did you, how did you word that? Did oh, you I just come off, straight off, and say it? Offhandedly, hey, man, how, how long have I had that policy? Uh, people have been honest are great actors. I have a Screen Actors Guild card for a reason. Um, yeah, and so he said, I don't know, I'll check. And he's clanking on the keys, and he comes back, and then it hits him in the middle hmm. of the sentence. He goes, you've had it 22 months? And no, 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 don't do it. Yeah. Because he'd had phone calls like that where somebody had been beyond the 24 months and he had delivered the check to the heirs. Oh, Jesus. So he said when he hung up, he told his wife, I think he's going to kill himself. Yeah. But I had, I had to wait two months. I wasn't going to leave my wife brokenhearted and broke. <clears throat> and when two months had lapsed, I don't rec- I wasn't marking days off the calendar. I don't, life must have gotten a little bit better because I don't recall you know day 61 or two or three and after making it past that point and then when the bookings came back you know meeting planners started calling they said look frank we love you we can't pay you five grand just to be funny you got to teach our audience something i don't and jay i'd always wanted to do that i always wanted to make a living and a difference i just could never figure out what i had to teach anybody so i read a book by a woman named judy carter Judy Carter, she's a friend of mine. It's called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. Interesting. So Judy said, you know, buy my book on Amazon, read it. I went into a thing and I got nothing. About halfway through, I thought, son of a gun, I do have something to teach. Because I realized, because of my close call with suicide, because there are more nuts in my family than in a squirrel turd. And, you know, my grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. <clears throat> and, of course, I came so close. So I that's hereditary. Oh, yeah. It's called generational depression and suicide. Runs in families. So I thought if I get some training in suicide prevention, you know, get some certifications, which I have three or four, then I could, I could keynote on suicide prevention. And then I realized that I needed to niche my marketing. So I thought... Hmm. What are the top 10 at-risk occupations for suicide? Because the what I tell my speaker coaching clients, an ideal client for a speaker is someone who has an annual meeting. They use outside speakers. They've got enough money to pay your fee, and they have a real need to hear what you have to say. And that, that screams associations because associations have to have a meeting every year, conference to install a new board of directors. So I chose six occupations, dentists, veterinarians, physicians, attorneys, agriculture, and construction. Those are the the most suicidal careers? Yes. And veterinarians? Veterinarians, dentists. Well, the reason there is, is because nowadays, dentists, veterinarians, physicians, attorneys, most of them come out of a professional school with a half million dollars or more in student loan uh, debt before they open their office. See, I've heard of the uh, the dentist. I and I, I don't know why that was always such a big one, the dentists. Whenever you hear dentists, you, it's associated with suicide. It's because of the debt? Uh, well, it's, it's the debt, yeah. It's because suicide is not the big problem with those four occupations. It's stress-induced or exacerbated mental and physical ailments, heart attack, 
high blood pressure, stroke, or depression, thoughts of suicide. Construction, by the way, a thousand people a year, roughly, roughly a thousand die by accident in construction every year. Over 5,000 die by suicide every year. Oh, whoa. Yeah, which means you have a five, you're five times more likely to jump off the building than fall off it. Well, that seems like a problem. Uh, yeah, so they, I do quite a bit of speaking in the construction shit. industry. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, but I tell my students, look, you, you need to, my student speaker students every now and then, I can speak to anybody about anything. Well, then you will speak, you will be speaking to nobody about nothing because, you know, Speaking is not a spray and pray business. It's you need you need to uh, you need to pick ideal clients, people who people who need to hear what you have to yeah. say. You need to resonate with them for sure. Yes, exactly. They must have a pain point that you're addressing. Otherwise, I don't care how how good your keynote is. If they don't, if you're not solving a problem for them, then why would they book it? Now, so I I have a bunch of speeches one networking speech and I've had some cardio issues thanks to my family. So I got cardiac, cardiac speech and I've got um, a motivational, inspirational speech. Uh, but I decided in January of 2018, I looked around town at the most successful businesses. I was in a chamber of commerce. Who are the most successful people? So a couple of guys came to mind and I thought, what do these two fellows have in common? And it hit me. They do one thing and they do it extremely well. And so I thought, that's it. I'm just going to be a suicide prevention speaker. And in the speaking business, they call that picking a lane. Pick a lane. Pick a lane. Yeah. Now, the problem for most of my students is if you pick a lane, there's something called uh, opportunity cost, meaning you're not picking all the other lanes. Sure. And so sure. They, they're terrified they're going to lose out on some business. Um, if they don't, you know, offer all these things. Um, and by the way, I just looked up suicide prevention speakers construction in an incognito search. And there's a, a nonprofit and then three videos. And then, oh, look at this. The mental health comedian has the first organic listing. <laughs> <laughs> Take that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> that's one of the benefits of of niching your marketing is you can really focus on getting as far up the page on, on, you know, on um, Google as possible. I tell my students, look, if they can't find you on Google, uh, you know, you're wasting your time because that's where oftentimes they find, you know, it's usually on a handheld device. It's usually somebody who's young and they're going to go right to Google to find it. When the boss goes, give me a suicide prevention speaker. SEO, the search engine optimization is a very real thing. Yes, and I t- and when I talk to entrepreneurs in general, I go, look, I think if you're an entrepreneur, you also need to pick a lane, and then you need to decide who your ideal clients are. No side hustles, no marketing to everybody. You need to decide who it is really needs your service and focus on them. And you know, I was worked in radio on mic, and then one summer here in town, I worked selling commercials and voicing copy and writing copy. And when somebody goes to a radio station, Jay, they and they are advertising a business, you sit down with a sales executive, they would sit down and they go, well, who's your ideal audience? And they say, well, it's um, men 18 to 25. Or whatever. So we would look at the numbers for all the stations in the group and see which one had the strongest, you know, the best ratings. 
among 18 to 25 year old men and that's where they'd advertise because that's where the clients the customers are sure sure so yeah. yeah i think i think it's important um i'm not a big fan of of side hustles or i mean i i just like everybody else jay i suffer from shiny object syndrome um yeah. it took me years to let everything else slide it but seems I, like the uh the case of being a specialist versus like a jack of all trades like this the specialist is going to be able to hone in and and reach their 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 clients, I suppose, their audience a little bit better than these jack of all trades. That's why when you look at sports players, like the people that that spend all of these hours on a specific thing end up being the best at them instead of someone who does a little bit of everything. They don't become great because they dabble into everything and don't put their their mind and their ability into one specific thing. Yes. And I had this conversation with them. Uh... One of my clients, we're doing a, we're doing a, she's doing a TEDx on this subject, shiny object syndrome. And I said, you know, let's take two examples, one for sports fans, one for non-sports fans. We'll do the non-sports fans one first. So you got an orchestra. Now, pretty much everybody in a professional orchestra plays more than one instrument, but they play one particularly well. Yes. And so... You wouldn't ask everybody, all right, everybody, what's your second instrument? Okay, let's let's go. Right, I said, right. On the sports team, if you watch sports at all, football especially, and let's say that both the first and second string quarterback gets hurt. They're not necessarily going to the third string quarterback. They're probably going to go to a receiver who played quarterback in college. But they're not, that's not a long-term you know, plan for success to have that receiver who played a court you know but he can play the he can play the position he can probably get you through the game yeah that's a band-aid yeah i mean in baseball a little different because you got those utility ball players but um but yeah football orchestra they do what they do really really well so right right that's what you do yeah i finally and i knew that i learned that um pick a lane in 95 it just took me what would be a 05 15 took me 30 years to put it into practice that's okay (laughs) hey life is a journey yeah i finally i finally january 1st 2018 i'm fine um that's all i'm gonna do and it made all the difference all of a sudden things began to fall into place i met people who i you know that that may help me on that journey and um and 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 I got a call from a nonprofit in New Mexico this past weekend. Um, and I said, well, so where'd you find me? She goes, well, we, we, we wanted a speaker, but somebody different than the average speaker. And so we went online and you kept coming up. <laughs> hey, <All laughs> Bingo. <right. laughs> Yeah, so that's what I tell my, my students, speaking students, look, we want to make it, and this goes for entrepreneurs in general, we want to make it so that you're not a commodity in whatever it is you offer. You know, when they come looking for what you have to offer, they don't go looking for anybody who has that. They come looking specifically for you. That's the long game. Yeah, and that's a beautiful thing. They're specifically looking for you yeah yeah and it's it what happens how you, you feel i mean geez to hear that that's got to be full of like your oh. confidence you got to shoot up and you're you get a second wind or whatever that's got to be magical yeah i mean and and 
at 65 to have uh, the first organic listing on any page on anything is yeah. you know yeah. i mean if you go to dentistry i got half a dozen listings on page one i mean i own the real estate on page one and yeah speakers dental um and i mean it's six between six and eight organic listings on page one i mean i don't know any, i don't know any 24 year olds who can pull that off no, so no. yeah so it, it gives me a little stiffy um yeah <laughs> <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. Um, hey, you're allowed. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. That's so I tell, and that's the result of picking a lane and then find your ideal clients and just marketing to them. I, and and I say, look, you know, marketing is like this. I learned this in radio. Whatever you're marketing to, whomever you're marketing it, only about three to five percent of the people you're marketing to need what you offer right now. What you're doing is by having a consistent appearing consistently on, let's say, LinkedIn. You're being known before you're needed. So people have been seeing your posts, um, yeah. post five times a week on LinkedIn, two videos. I see your and, posts. You got good posts. Really oh, good thanks. posts. Love them. Yeah, and there's two videos and three text ones a week. And so what I'm after is you want to be known before you're needed. So when somebody decides they need a TEDx coach, <laughs> then, then they wait a minute i know it. oh hold on i've seen his posts uh that's what you're after really yeah okay makes sense and you know are you a rare person would you say because i don't know how common this is you know there's examples of course in the news about comedians that have depression and the biggest one is for me personally is robin williams i mean that that shit took me by surprise that was a huge loss, um, but he seemed happy. He seemed happy on the outside. Every time you you see him, he was smiling, cheerful, making jokes like nothing was wrong. Um, is this is this a common thing with comedians that that kind of wear a mask on the outside, but then when they get home, they're just a completely different person when they're by themselves. I think uh, I think Robin actually was living with bipolar disorder. Jeez. given his manic, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. Wow. And, um, I, and he, I believe he was self-medicating for decades with drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. So he was in and out of rehab, mm -hmm. uh, which he joked about at length, but he never joked. He never talked about having a mental illness or being, you know, having suicidal thoughts. Right. Yeah. Never. I did a TEDx called mental benefits, the evolutionary advantages of mental illness. Because I kept bumping into people who were mentally ill, high functioning, that just had amazing, some other super ability. Actors, comedians, singers, artists, writers. I thought this cannot be a coincidence. Well, sure enough, there are a goodly number of people who are notable, famous, wealthy, talented, whatever, that have a mental challenge of some kind. And I said to the audience, look, I don't think I'm broken. I think my... You know, I think I was made this way. I think my depression and thoughts of suicide are simply the flip side of my imagination, creativity, comic ability, because I can teach you to write stand-up. I can teach you to perform stand-up. What I cannot teach you to do is process the incoming information the way my brain does. I mean, there's a reason when somebody heckles me that I can say something that I never even consciously thought before I said it. <laughs> right. There's right. a woman was in the front row with a bunch of her friends. They're drinking. They're drinking Dom Perignon, so the club didn't want to throw them out because they're spending buckets of money. 
But they get the point. They're just too obnoxious, and everybody's you know begin to impact the show. So they throw them all out. Well, the young woman, oh, okay. the young woman, last one in line, on the way out the door. Mm-hmm. And as she's going out the door, she st- starts turning back to the stage. I figure she heard something that sounded like her name because drunks her voice activated. Mm-hmm. So um, she screams at me, F you! And without even thinking, consciously, I said, not even for practice. <laughs> and I got a standing ovation. People came up and go, how'd you think that up? I didn't think it up. When you heard it, I heard it. I, I had no idea I was going to say that. I love that. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that's magic with that stuff. When a live performance, when something just snaps into your head instantly, it's an art for sure. Yeah, and I believe it's it's a result of the way my brain processes things yeah. like that at a at super high speed. It's you know, and it ha- it's happened over and over and over, and and the the as a comic, it's valuable in that there's something called. Um, hypervigilance, mm-hmm. which I don't have hypervigilance. Like somebody's come back from a war zone and they're just always expecting something to happen. Um, but I'm somewhat hypervigilant and I'm, I'm always, comedians are great observers of things. Uh, we notice mm-hmm. things that other people just walk right by. Right. And so it's, it almost looks like, you know, a superpower when you, my wife drove past a guy on our way to get the car fixed. So we took two vehicles. She was ahead of me. She passed a building where there was a young man seated outside the building wearing all black. Uh, he had a black bicycle. And so we get to the car place and she goes, did you see? And I said, the guy in the black outfit with the black bicycle <laughs> next to the building. She goes, holy shit. How did you, how did it's you get <laughs> Yeah, because yeah, I, I mean, I, I know I saw him. I made a note of it. And I knew that was the only odd thing on our little two mile journey was that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, again, I think it's just the way my brain works and it's just why it's miswired or wired that way, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, um, I want to touch base back on the, uh, the suicidal run that you had in, cause this is, I think it's very important for the listeners and myself, but, um, did your wife, she, I would say she had to have known that you were you were suicidal at that moment that time and being but maybe not i don't know no she had no maybe idea nobody had any idea no one had any idea no and you were just you were going to you said the barn yeah nobody knew that i was living with depression and thoughts of suicide nobody it's knew crazy, that she, she had no crazy. idea that i'd come that close wow. she, she didn't know about it i didn't when i did my first tedx because that was the next challenge i've been a stand-up comic for two and a half decades at this point, and I'm, I'm going to be speaking on suicide prevention. So I thought, well, how the hell am I going to convince meeting planners I could do something serious? And right. I thought I'll do a TEDx. So I applied for the TEDx. And one of the reasons I got it was because between the time I auditioned and the time of the TEDx, Robin Williams died by suicide. So the committee said, look, you're a comic. Uh, and I said, yes. And I worked with Robin a couple of times. And they said, if you'll mention Robin in your talk on suicide prevention, then you can do it. So I said, I said, I said, I've already written it in. So, and then that was in October around Thanksgiving, the video went up on YouTube and my wife's about to hit play. And I said, stop, I need to tell you about a half dozen things you don't know about me. You're going to learn from that video. 
and she didn't know that I was living with depression and thoughts of suicide and that I come that close to killing myself, you know, three years at 2012. Yeah. Two or three years before. So nobody knew no, my family, my friends, nobody had any idea. I was living with all that until I did my first TEDx. Yeah. It's, it's kind of amazing that you can literally be on the edge and all of a sudden your life takes this unexpected turn and you're able to use that as a positive and now you're changing other people's lives yeah when i got introduced at the they do a bio i don't know if you've ever been to a bodybuilding contest but in the morning you compete i mm -hmm. got competed in 40 plus in other words 40 and older bodybuilding and and then in the afternoon they there's an actual show for the public and in the show you do a one minute routine to music mm -hmm. and they read a bio. And right. so I gave them my st standard bio and it just starts off, you know, as a writer for the tonight show over 20 years. And then it gets a little darker. He lives with depression, thoughts of suicide. He's thought about killing himself more times. He can count. He can tell you what the right. of his gun tastes like. Uh -huh. You could hear the hush come over the audience. And then when I got off stage and I was getting ready to leave, a guy came up to me and he shook my hand and he goes, I too know what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Jeez. Yeah. And several people said they were just amazed that I was willing to step up and say, look, this is, this is what I've been through. This is how close I came. And you know, it's, um, what kind of feeling comes over you when, when someone like that comes up to you and says, I too know what the, the taste of, uh, pistol face. Oh, like it's, it's very therapeutic for me because it's probably not something that he, he says out loud very often. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what's yeah. the best Jay is, uh, I have something called chronic suicidal ideation, which means for me and people in my tribe, the option of suicide mm -hmm. is always on the menu as a solution for problems, large and small. I say that to the audience. And I said, uh, give you an idea how small a couple of years ago, my car broke down. I had three thoughts unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, hell, I could just kill myself. Wow. I know. It sounds absurd. However, every time I've spoken, for the most part, wow. since 2014, there's been one person in the audience, sometimes more, who have chronic suicidal ideation. They do not know it has a name. They don't even know it's a thing. They think they're just some kind of freak and completely alone. I did a college presentation. A young woman came up afterwards and said, thanks for your keynotes. You're welcome. She goes, but I got to tell you, it made me weep. I said, how did it make you weep? She said, well, you know your story about the car? Get to fix, buy a new one, or just kill yourself? She goes, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I didn't know it had a name. I thought it was just me, and I was some kind of freak and completely alone. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I am not alone, and I wept. What's it called again? I'm sorry. Chronic the, suicidal uh, ideation. Ideation. Or chronic suicidality. And it's 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 not in the big book of mental illnesses called the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, DSM. I know that because I was at, I just did Dry Bar Comedy, the YouTube comedy show, the super duper clean YouTube comedy show. And a friend of mine brought his brother to the show. They live in Provo which is where it was filmed. And his brother has been a therapist for 20 years. And 
my friend had been telling his brother about chronic suicidal ideation, my condition. And when the show was over and I met his brother, he goes, Frank, I've been a, I've been a therapist for 20 years. He said, I'd never even heard of that. Wow. He said, but looking back yeah. after my brother told me about it, as I was thinking through the years, you know, back through the years of my patients, you know, things were popping up into my head that they had said that would indicate that they have what you have, but I just didn't know that it was a thing. So with this chronic suicide ideation, is this, how, how often do people actually act out on committing suicide with those thoughts? Or is it more or less just a fantasy of killing yourself? Yes, it's a coping mechanism. Which is what I tell people who have it. I go, look, here's the deal. It's just a coping mechanism. Just because you have the thought doesn't mean you have to act on it. And it's just a way for your brain to relieve the stress of some situation. Uh, And it's just, you know, it's always on the menu. It's like option, always option C. Or you could just kill yourself. It's it's not a serious thought. Now, here's the upside, Jay. Yeah. Because if you have chronic suicidal ideation, you have made the determination you can kill yourself. I mean, sure. even infants have an amazing will to survive, to live. But myself and other people like me, we've made the determination we could do it any time. Which, if if suicide is really about ending the pain, which I believe it is, mm-hmm. because I know I can end it any time of my choosing, I can stand a great deal more pain because I'm in control. I know I can bring it to an end in a you know, with a moment's notice. So ironically, my chronic suicidal ideation helps keep me alive. That's interesting. That's so fascinating. Yeah, a friend of mine said, yeah, if it weren't for my chronic suicidal ideation, I'd have killed myself a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of crazy to hear it like that, but the way I understand. Well, imagine yourself in the audience. You've been having those thoughts all your life, Jay. You think you're just some kind of freak. You've never told anybody because who who do you want to tell that kind of thing to? And then some guy on the stage, writer for the Dutch over 20 years, stand-up comedy for 35, obviously Mm -hmm. got his shit together. And, oh, my God, that's a thing? I mean, imagine the relief to find out that other people have it. It's a thing with a definition. Yeah, it's it's so important to have that tribe, like you said, tribe. It's, It's such a giant thing. I mean... Regardless of how out there your thing is, uh, chances are you're not alone. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's at least one other person out there. Well, they know for a fact there's at least one other because they're, uh, and people come up to me oftentimes um, and they'll come up and I'm doing something else. Like I just got done talking with somebody. I turn to them and they say, I'm your one. Yeah. You're my one what? I'm the one in the audience who has chronic suicidal ideation. Yeah. yeah. I think I think the hardest part is knowing that most people aren't like you and how can you find your person, your tribe. That's the hardest part to find that, that journey to, to find that. I yeah, imagine. but you, you can't find them if you don't know they exist. Exactly. Right, right. So when I was in college, maybe like, 10, 15 years ago, um, I was going, I was dependent on Xanax. Oh, hello. Oh, yeah. So I started off with a, a 0.25 milligrams and doctor prescribed it to me just to, I was having some, you know, anxiety from 
overwhelming at school. Okay. So I started taking it and I thought nothing of it. I was getting good sleep, but then, you know, you need a little bit more because it doesn't work as well. So went to my doctor, prescribed more. So now I'm at about 0.75 a night. Fast forward a little bit. I was up to three grams or three milligrams a night of Xanax. That is a preposterous amount of Xanax, right? And I was going through my prescriptions so fast. And this one particular case, I had ran out about two weeks early before I can get another prescription. Now, if anyone knows, if you've ever taken Xanax, it's not something you want to cold turkey on because you can die from that. You can have, I think it's called like a grand mal seizure or something like that. Yeah. So no one understood the severity of it and I couldn't sleep. The thoughts that were going through my head were nothing I've ever experienced before. My brain was backfiring on me for sure. I'm used to being in this state where my mind is just at ease and I'm not worried about anything that can cause anxiety. So I, I pretty much just had an off switch, which was that, that Xanax. So when I had to stop taking it, you know, I called my brother. I'm like, I'm not okay right now. I'm freaking out. I'm so anxious. I'm out of this prescription. I just called my doctor. My doctor will not prescribe it. So I don't know what to do. I think I need to go to rehab like ASAP because I'm on the internet looking and I'm reading about seizures and like, you shouldn't go cold turkey. I've been taking it for three months. This is like a huge dosage that I'm on. So I was in Chicago at the time and he lived in the suburbs. So the next move was for me to, to try and gather my things and get on a train and make it his way. Well, when I'm walking through the city and it's, it's nighttime, I am freaking out about every little thing that can go wrong. I was thinking that something was going to fall off a skyscraper and just kill me instantly. Like a, this is a real thought. I thought something was going to fall off a skyscraper and kill me. I couldn't get my mind together. I mean, I finally, obviously I'm here today, but I made it to the train. When I'm on the train, I was just so anxious. I couldn't, I couldn't sit still. Just these thoughts of, of panic, pure, pure panic. And if anyone has ever felt panic before, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just you feel useless. You feel everything is going to go wrong, right? And I was paralyzed by it. I couldn't even get off at my stop. Made it to the stop. I was too scared to move and get off. So my brain is completely backfiring right now. So I, I was able to, like, I, I sat up and I ran off the train. Just wow. Freaking Ran off. Yes. And um, made it to his house. And he's like, just sleep it off. I'm like, Nick, this is not something you can just sleep off. You need to take me to, to rehab right now. So like, you sure you want to do this? Yes. Take me. So we get in the car and have you know, I'm having panic, panic attacks throughout this whole journey in the car to the rehab center, which is about 45 minutes away, freaking out and finally made it there. And I spent the weekend at the uh, at the rehab ever since then i will never touch that shit in my life and it's not it's not a quick journey okay so it's like when you get off xanax it's not like oh so you spent the weekend there you detoxed and you're off it no 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 for the next three years i was having severe panic attacks i could not drive my fucking car on the highway i would have to pull off 
and like capture myself. You, you can feel it coming on like a panic attack where you can't breathe. Your vision gets blurry. Your, your heart starts beating rapidly. And this happened for about three years. Every single time I got on the highway, that was the biggest trigger. I don't know why it might've been from when I was driving to rehab with my brother. That could be it. But now, like right now for the past couple years, I've been so clean. I've been, my life is completely different. I had to cut out a bunch of people out of my life and like I'm living so good now, but I feel like I am a wonderful person to talk to as well because I've lived through these things. I understand. I'm able to be empathetic toward people. I understand where your mind can go. I understand it. And it can go into some deep, deep, dark places. Like it, it exists. It's not, it's not a fantasy. People aren't making this shit up. It's, yeah, very, well, it's very real. Yeah, but because my, my sister has panic attacks. Uh, it's hard for people to wrap their mind around, you know, they, my favorite is just breathe. Look, if I could fucking breathe, don't you think I would? (laughs) But like people say about my depression, choose joy. Okay. Look, unless you're talking about dishwashing liquid, I'm pretty much out of luck. (laughs) Yeah. On the outside, it seems simple, right? Oh yeah. Just just take a breath, relax, chill out. Yeah, Yeah. 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 I got it. Yeah. Um, it ain't that easy peoples no but they mean well i mean you know people are kind they mean well but they just don't have any concept of um you know which is when i speak i speak in part to the people that have mental challenges relatable and then i speak Mm -hmm. to the neurotypicals in an effort to decode it for them so they can begin to understand what the person who has a challenge is going through and be more helpful so yeah did you ever uh, indulge in some drugs or alcohol to try and cope with it? No. Um, I Coffee helps with the depression. Sure. Um, but yeah. I take an antidepressant. started taking that when I was 60. I took a supplement prior to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, over-the-counter supplement worked pretty well. But yeah. uh, no, I didn't. Um, I, 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 I decided because alcoholism drug addiction runs rampant through my family. Uh, a joke yeah. I wrote was my family fails the first question on the roadside sobriety test, which is would you please <laughs> step out of the car? <laughs> um, so I figured in comics, because you either get free drinks or discounted drinks or people are sending you shots. Yeah. I if I don't start, then I won't have to stop. Yeah. And once I started bodybuilding, I thought, you know, I'd much rather eat my calories than drink them. When did you start bodybuilding? Uh, oddly enough, January first, two thousand eighteen, the same day, same day that I started, um, you know, picked a lane and started speaking only on suicide prevention. I also started the keto diet that day and intermittent fasting. So I made some big changes January first, two thousand eighteen. And it helps because I, yeah, me too. I'm I'm very health conscious as well. I uh, running is a giant one for my brain like the mental clarity i get when i run but i'm also at the gym six days out of the week too and just trying to keep a clean diet i mean that shit helps so much i don't i don't think people understand how beneficial that could be to your human body and your brain yeah well and before we go because i got only got two minutes i had a heart attack in the woods with the dogs all by myself i had t-mobile so i didn't have cell service there we go. And never fails to get a laugh. And I had to walk a half mile back to the car and drive two miles home. And what? and then take a 25-minute ambulance ride to the hospital. 
So I go to the hospital and um, I'm in the cardiac cath lab where you can, you know, with the cardiac cath, they run the probe inside your femoral artery and they can see what's going on inside your chest. They can see the heart attack in real time. Yeah, yeah. So my doctor says to me, wait a minute, and I'm quoting him now, you walked half a mile, drove two miles and survived a 25 minute ambulance ride having this fucking heart attack, <laughs> uh, end quote. And what have you been doing the last six months? I go, well, I've been working on the boats, the ships, because I do comedy on cruise ships. Mm-hmm. And there's there are elliptical runners on there, and I'm on there for an hour a day at the highest resistance. And he goes, well, that's why you're alive. Oh, my because, God. Yeah, because if you put your heart under load every day like that, yeah. and then you have an incident, the something happens called vasodilation. All the, the veins and the arteries around the heart expand as far as they possibly can to pump blood to whatever part of the heart is under attack. Oh, wow. Wow. Because if you've been sitting on your can eating Cheetos, you'd be dead in the woods right now. Holy shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> you are hard to kill then, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> That's well, fantastic. let me leave you with this. I, people ask me, what are you thinking as you're coming down the hill that half mile? You know, you, are you hearing, you know, you're seeing a light, you hear voices of your dead relatives, thinking about your wife. No, actually, I was crying because it, two yeah. weeks from that day, I was scheduled to do my first TEDx talk on suicide prevention. And I was crying wow. because I'm thinking, think of all the people I might have saved if I could have just gotten on stage for that TEDx. Yeah, yeah you weren't ready to go. I'm glad you didn't go. Frank, I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for doing this, man. Yeah, um, man. Is, there, is there anything you want to give a shout out to at the end of this, like your social media, TED Talks coming up, books? Uh, you know what? Um, if they go to thementalhealthcomedian.com, thementalhealthcomedian. Beautiful. Uh, put your email address in. Our first book in a four-book series on men's mental health, I'm narrating them. I narrated the first one. It's there for free. Good, good. P3 download, unabridged, me doing the first book. Amazing. Frank King, thank you so much for doing this, man. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Jay. Take care. See ya. Everyone at home, later.